Tonight's episode of Nightmare University is brought to you by Fangoria.com. Your homepage for horror is here. Fangoria.com is now live and brimming with the digital horror content you crave. Fangoria.com is your destination for all the stories that couldn't fit in the physical magazine. Long-form pieces, deep dives, daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, exclusive access to the Fangoria vaults, as well as a constant curation of our favorite links from across the internet. Right now, all subscribers to the magazine are automatically members of Fangoria.com. And as promised, the content of the new issues will forever be print only. If you're not already a subscriber, check out the new Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Fangoria.com. Hello and welcome to Nightmare University. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca McKendry, and I am back from um, several weeks of traveling to various horror conventions and horror film festivals around the country. Um, getting to meet Shockwaves listeners and Nightmare University listeners. And um, it was just a fantastic time. So I'm excited to be back and to be able to discuss what um, we're going to be discussing tonight. And that is the aesthetics of gore. And this is a weird topic that um, I used to teach when I was teaching at Hunter College about 10 years ago. I would do an entire class just focused on gore. And then for the past um, couple of years, or even longer, um, close to a decade, horror films kind of shifted to not being as gory. When I started the class, we were in kind of the middle of the torture porn craze, and I was looking at a lot of Saw and hostile movies, and my students were really, really kind of into this kind of ultra-violence gore. And then we had um, our Blumhouse model come in, and those kind of became the prevailing horror films, and we weren't seeing gore. Instead, we were seeing things like insidious and sinister and uh, paranormal activity. But now, we're starting to start to see this kind of shift back to gore, and I'm also seeing a lot of my students discover gore on uh, older films that they're finding on Netflix and Shutter and places like that. So I started including this in my class again last semester, and I've once again kind of become fascinated with how gore resonates on screen and what that means and how it resonates inside the viewers. If we see someone die completely covered in blood versus dying you know, kind of dry with nothing on them and just, a, you know, a twisted face. So I really kind of want to delve into um, what gore does to us as we watch, like what it says about the film, why we would want to watch this stuff and where it has always been historically because we've kind of waxed and waned in how much carnage we include in our movies. So I'll usually open up my class when I teach this with a clip that is super gory. I'll show something from Martyrs or Reanimator or something from Cannibal Holocaust. Since I can't do that over the fine podcast medium, I thought I would start with a um, excerpt from a book. And this is from Dracula's, and this is by author Blake Crouch. He curled up, twitching and spasming, the pain stormtrooping through his entire body in agonizing, dizzying, pounding waves. He vomited. But it wasn't the contents of his stomach. It was his stomach, hanging inside out from a slimy loop of esophagus, spilling out the precious blood he'd been digesting. Even with everything going on, the smell of blood activated his biting reflex, and he chomped down his own regurgitated organs, screaming as he chewed. So here we have a vampire eating his own organs, um, which of course makes me think of uh, scenes from Anthropophagus and, and many other kind of excessive horror films, which brings me to the question of 
How do you feel when you watch stuff like this? How do you feel when you see gore on screen? Are you scared? Are you revolted, repulsed, um, amused, even laughing sometimes? Or is it all of the above? And for most of us, it varies per film. It varies depending on how the filmmaker presents it. There are certain things that I will say are kind of like personal triggers in the gore realm. Like for me, if I ever see anybody doing anything with fingernails, it kind of grates my nerves a little bit more. If I see fingernails breaking or anything like that, that grates my nerves a little bit more. And I've discovered that a lot of people kind of have that personal thing. Like I'm okay until somebody does something to an eyeball. So God help you watching zombie or I'm okay until I see something happen with fingers. Um, so sometimes we'll have personal triggers that really kind Kind of push us a little bit further but for the most part we change how we feel about the gore or the bloodletting depending on how it's being portrayed within the film and how gore is portrayed in the film changes drastically historically so the way that gore was portrayed in the 60s becomes different from the 70s and the 80s and so on as does the amount that we are seeing so we're going to see um kind of a waxing and waning historically of you know this decade we don't see a lot and then we'll see a lot more here so let's start with the question, why do we even want to see this stuff? Which is something that my parents asked me all the time when I was growing up and watching um, all of these crazy 80s effects-laden movies on our um, console television in the middle of the living room. My dad would always walk through the living room and look at me on the floor staring bright-eyed at this stuff and go, why do you even want to watch this stuff? And I still don't have a great answer, but I've come to terms with over the years the fact that we as humans are big fluid-filled sacks with anxiety and emotional issues. And most of that anxiety and emotional issues all kind of goes back to our fear of death, our fear that at some point our big giant fluid-filled sacks are going to be punctured and that all of that fluid and stuff that we think of as like the essence of who we are, of life, of our physical being is in some way going to leak out. And within that, we also have a fear and fascination of looking at others' fluids inside. It's kind of like the act of bearing our insides. And so... I know so many people who can watch horror films, but if they cut themselves the blood, like it, it, it causes kind of a reaction where they feel like they're going to pass out, myself included. I've definitely cut my hand on a light bulb before and it was so much blood coming off of it that it made me feel woozy. And so for most of us, psychologically, seeing gore represents the end, that we think of blood as not only our life essence, but as soon as we can physically see it, the end is nigh. And so for a lot of us, it, it kind of represents death. And that gets us into this whole idea of seeing death on screen and specifically seeing wet deaths versus dry deaths. The idea of cinematically dying with, you know, nothing on you of just kind of, you know, contorting on the floor or think of it like a ring death where you're just kind of, you know, being twisted and things like that. Or something like we see in Suspiria, where if you're going to die in Suspiria or most Giallo films, you're going to die completely covered in your own fluid. So which one is more believable? Which one's more gut churning? Which is more effective and mentally staining? 
Well, again, it's going to depend largely on the film. I can think of movies where people die um, not covered in any fluids at all, where their deaths are are completely shocking for me. And then I can think of other ones um, that are so extreme, where the gore and the carnage just ups the ante so much. For example, Inside, the French film Inside was one that I always think of where the blood in that movie for some reason hits me more than a lot of other stuff. When I look at films where the blood really kind of pushes it and makes me mentally cringe, that's one of them. Another one is Trouble Every Day. That movie is so blood-soaked and so intense, but there's something aesthetically going on with it that makes me feel the bloodletting of everyone in that film so much more. Whereas looking at something like Suspiria, in Suspiria, the blood is not really pushing reality. It's more of an aesthetic choice. It's super bright. It's almost poster paint color. It, it borders on kind of an orangey red shade. And it works beautifully aesthetically. Like I look at the shots of Gore in Suspiria and see art being painted. I don't see reality. So even though that there are scenes in Suspiria that I see as being hyper-gory and definitely cringeworthy, it does not look as real as something like Inside to me. But there is also a pleasure that can be derived from not seeing deaths on screen. If we look at something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, where we know that Henry is doing these absolute atrocities where, you know, we see a girl playing a guitar and then we see Henry approach her and then in the next scene, the girl's no longer there, but Henry has the guitar. We are able to infer what happened in between there. And somehow that is just as terrifying. So it's all about how the filmmaker is presenting it. And so then it gets us into kind of the history of gore because a lot of this, whether we're going to see the filmmaker use this gore or not, a lot of it kind of goes along with historical trends and whatever is the prevailing belief at the time period. Gore has always been a part of our entertainment going all the way back in history. We have always loved violence. We have always loved gore. And if you go back and listen to my Haunted House episode from a couple of weeks ago, you'll hear about how theater tricks dating all the way back to like Greco-Roman times always included how we were going to show gore on stage, how we were going to show bloodletting. And just as far back, we have viewed gore as humor. And we're going to see that really come into play when we get into the 1800s, um, especially with the Grand Guignol Theater. This is somewhat cultural. But even when we look at other cultures around the globe, most have some way that they would insinuate some type of gore or bloodletting on stage. Whether it's like um, in the Shakespearean times where they're using actual pig bladders that you can stab and that people can bleed out on stage. Or even Kabuki theater where they're using red sand to indicate that someone's bleeding. Most cultures have some way that they are insinuating gore inside of their entertainment going all the way back. So let's talk a little bit about the Grand Guignol Theater, just because I've always been so amused by the Grand Guignol and the history behind it. So this opened in 1887 in Paris, and it was around until 1962. And the Grand Guignol was a live theater show, but what they specifically specialized in was doing these horror shows, these kind of illusion shows. And you can think of it almost like Wizard of Gore, the 1970s Herschel Gordon Lewis movie. They would present these short skits that always kind of included a horrific or a gory angle, but they ranged from ones that were super, super scary to comedy 
comedy, and they would usually do a mix of comedy and horror within the same evening. They referred to them as giving the audience hot and cold showers. So it would go from something super scary to super comedic and then back to scary. And they all kind of had these scary and gory angles. And so it was all about kind of replicating these horrific acts on stage, beheading people, pulling eyeballs out, and and kind of giving the audience these moments of, oh my God, is it real? Is it not? And one of the things that the Grand Geek Knoll became most known for was their amazing posters, which were just as gory as their actual shows, if not more so. Highly recommend um, Googling Grand Geek Knoll posters and Grand Geek Knoll in general to get the full history. It's, it's really quite fascinating. Um, but for me, this um, coming out in the late 1800s really did demonstrate that the audience had been shifting. Um, in the 1800s in general, we as a populace became really kind of amused with anything otherworldly. We were kind of enamored with the idea of death and what was going on in the afterlife. And we see things like galvanism and um, all of these different kind of medical oddities and amusements with the occult and incantations and uh, trying to reach the other world. This is around the same time that Ouija boards become a thing. And we have this kind of general society enamoredness with death during this time period. And so seeing this really exacerbated on stage in the form of entertainment makes total sense. And again, it continued until the 1960s and then kind of phased out. And where I really see um, the best embodiment of the spirit of the Grand Guignol Theater is in filmmaker Herschel Gordon-Lewis, who we consider to be the godfather of gore. In 1963, Herschel Gordon-Lewis made Blood Feast, and previous to this, he had made a couple of other films, most of them kind of, you know, little TNA ROMs. Um, but Blood Feast he made and wanted the gore to become the central selling point. Um, and he, he really kind of wanted the gore to be the predominant thing in the marketing. He wanted it to be controversial. He wanted it to be something that people hadn't seen before. And though I struggled to call the gore good in the movie, it was something that hadn't been done before cinematically on screen, screen to quite this degree. Cutting people's arms off. There's a scene where um, somebody is roasting a leg. Um, we see a blood feast where we see all these body parts kind of strewn across the table. And so it was really transgressive in doing something that not a lot of people were really kind of pushing to this degree at that time period. And so throughout the 60s, we see Herschel Gordon Lewis really kind of pushing this. So much so that even just a year later in a 1964 essay, um, Jean-Claude Romer um, writes this essay, A Bloody New Wave in the United States, discusses how Herschel Gordon Lewis and David Friedman were likely giving up on what they called super gore because the market had already become so saturated. And this was just a year or two after they had started with Blood Feast. They had the gruesome twosome and color me blood red and these were all just kind of exacerbating the blood and the gore on screen these were not realistic gore they were not aiming for realism the blood was super hyper colored the gore itself felt very artificial but at the same time it was something that we had not seen before and they were really doing it well and even though that it is artificial and you can see the seams on most of the limbs there is an aesthetic to it there is something that is really fun and amusing about these movies but what I always loved about them and why I consider them to be kind of the infusion of what the Grand Gignol Theater was was their 
their marketing tactics, how they would actually list the atrocities that you were about to see, the gory moments you were about to see on the posters. If we look at the poster for The Wizard of Gore, it's actually like a carnival listing um, the feats that you're about to see, except they're gory things where it's like, see this man pressed to death, see this person get disemboweled. And we see it on Wizard of Gore. We see it on 2000 Maniacs. So Herschel Gordon Lewis knew what he was doing. He knew what he was selling and he himself came from a marketing background and he knew that the gory elements included in these films were the production value. It was what people were coming to see, that the plots were secondary and more of skeletal frameworks that you were now going to hang these kind of gory things on. And 2000 Maniacs, um, Wizard of Gore, even the Gore Gore Girls, they're all kind of set up as these very skeletal frameworks that the gory elements are are hung on. And so the plots just kind of serve as vehicles to move you from one gory setup to another. And they work really, really well in that regard. Herschel Gordon Lewis kind of leads the pack in the 1960s, but by the time we roll into the 70s, everyone is really trying to push this. We're post-war and horror films across the board and exploitation films, of course, have really pushed the gore to as far as it can go. And additionally, we've seen this transition from kind of the more fake gore that we were seeing in the 1960s, where it did have kind of this artifice to it. Gore has become more realistic. And so we have seen it shift to things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Snuff or Cannibal Holocaust or Cannibal Ferox, where the gore and the films themselves are now all about preserving reality. It's now all about making it look as real as possible, so much so that Texas Chainsaw Massacre begins with this kind of based on a true story um, setup. Cannibal Holocaust is set up as a found footage film where you're supposed to be watching actual documented footage. Um, Snuff is set up like a real snuff film. These are all set up to make you feel like you are watching something real. And then within this, we see that it starts getting banned. We have the video nasties happening in the UK and we have, you know, these films getting banned all over the place. We've got Cannibal Ferox banned in 31 countries and Texas Chainsaw Massacre being labeled as one of the most horrifying movies ever made, which opens the question, when does something become too intense for human consumption? Is there ever a point where something becomes too intense for human consumption? And I'm always intrigued why we are apt to ban gore. I mean, we are literally looking at our own innards, something that we all have. It's my same kind of question about why we are intense to ban nudity. Again, something that we all have and we've all seen before, but we are always kind of inclined as a society to go, oh, nope, you can't see that. So when does something become too intense for human consumption? Or does it ever? Whatever your belief system is in this of how banning should or should not work, what these films are is highly transgressive. They make you feel like you're watching something that you shouldn't be watching, this kind of exposure of the body, um, whether it be through nudity or the actual gore or the violence, this kind of exposure of the body. And regardless, these films getting banned across the board or Cannibal Ferox getting banned in 31 countries, it ups the value for you as a transgressive viewer. So for me as a kid at home, seeing Banned in 31 Countries on the VHS box made me want to see it all the more. So psychologically, banning something actually kind of is counterproductive because 
there's a group of fans who are saying, I want to see Snuff and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Cannibal Holocaust. These films look wild as hell. And then someone comes in and says, nope, nope, you can't. They are too intense for you to handle. Well, that just makes you want to see it all the more. It's the same thing that we saw in the 1980s when they came in and started banning music for being satanic or for having too explicit lyrics. It just drives the quest to see it. And this is what we saw in the 1980s with the video nasties in the UK. And I will soon be doing an entire episode on the video nasties with a fantastic expert on them. Um, But again, being told that something is too intense for you, that you are not mentally equipped to handle something, just makes you want to see it all the more. And so this transgressive appeal is really what these films were focused on was how to outdo themselves gore-wise. And so if one was going to put somebody on a meat hook, this next one was going to put multiple people on meat hooks, and we were just going to keep pushing it. And that's what we see in a lot of these films of the 1970s, is trying to outdo each other with gore and violence and anything else that they can throw up on screen. But part of it was because these movies felt so real. And this was also used in the marketing. I mean, if we look at um, the the marketing that became well-known and well-associated with Last House on the Left, there's arguments about what the first film to use it was, but the it's only a movie marketing. And this gets back to the act of making you believe that it's, you're watching something real. And so, so real that you have to keep telling yourself it's only a movie, it's only a movie. And this is definitely not just limited to the gore. These entire films in the 1970s were all about making you believe that something was real. If we look at the aesthetic of the film of the 1970s versus the 60s and the 80s, the decades around them, the aesthetic is completely different. It's much grainier. It's newsreel footage. Uh, The camera work is shakier. It's just all about kind of making it feel more within the realm of what we aesthetically consider real versus kind of a more studio shoot, something that we're going to see in the 1980s and things like Reanimator. And so I've read the theory on this fantastic article by David Ray Carter in the book From Art House to Grindhouse talking about how these films were even more believable because we were just a few years post Manson at this point. And society, and especially film viewers, had this kind of underlying belief of, okay, you know what? Crazy fucking shit can happen because there is horribly bad people out there. And so even though that they were not going into Texas Chainsaw Massacre believing this actual movie, that claim of truth up at the top, that it's based off a real-life event, post-Manson, you're psychologically going, okay, well, could it be? Could it be? One of the things that I've always been fascinated about Texas Chainsaw Massacre in general is that even though we feel like we're watching a large amount of gore in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we're actually not seeing that much. It's really cleverly edited so that we're not seeing as much as we see in a lot of the other movies of kind of the same ilk around the same time period. For instance, we will see Leatherface carrying the girl to the kitchen, and we'll see a close-up of the hook, and then we'll see Leatherface again, and then we see him pick her up and lower her down onto the hook, and then we see her face screaming. We never actually see any of the hook going into her, which we do see in close-ups in many other horror films from around the same time period. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the realism and the feeling that you are watching this excessive violence comes a lot out of editing and a lot out of the aesthetic that we're seeing throughout the rest of the film. That's not to say that there is not absolutely heinous shit in the movie. There is. But just compared to a lot of the other films that we're seeing around this time period, 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre was able to really kind of push and purvey the same level of violence, if not pushing it further mentally, but doing it without having to show a lot of what we were seeing in other films. Things like Last House on the Left. Last House on the Left was grounded in the element of voyeurism, the idea that we were watching these things go down, that we were kind of standing off to the side of them in the woods watching these absolutely horrible things happen. And that was done intentionally. It was supposed to look like newsreel footage. It was intended by Wes Craven to look ridiculously real, to kind of emulate what we had been seeing on the news post-war. Isabel Pinheiro writes in her book, Recreational Terror, this kind of concept that I know it's not real, but it looks real. And that we, even though that we as humans look at it and go, oh no, it's a movie, it's an artifice, but it looks real. And so we have to sit there and kind of second guess our own psyches. And it works. And then they used it as the amazing marketing to keep, uh, to avoid fainting, keep repeating, it's only a movie, it's only a movie. And so then we also get Snuff from 1976, which is definitely trying to push this kind of reality with the gore, this real aesthetic. It's shaky camera. It's bad lighting. They are fighting the studio style of shots being locked off. They're trying to make everything look look more real. So much so that at the end of one of the death scenes, one of the characters turns to the camera and says, did you get all that? Trying to make it look like a legit snuff film. And so we roll into the 1980s kind of having been through this intense real gore. And what we see in the 1980s in the U.S. is a push towards heavy effects. Like we really push the gore in the 1980s, but we also push it in a very kind of studio composed um, style. When we think about like Reanimator or Return of the Living Dead, we're back to a very cinematic style of presenting the gore. So where I really see us still pushing this kind of element of, quote, the real is over in Japan in the guinea pig series. And the first two come out in 1985. I have a fascination with the guinea pig series. I've seen all of them, and I'm a big fan of Mermaid in a Manhole, um, which is... Uh, feels different than all the other ones. The majority of the guinea pig series, they're all presented as real, with the exception of Mermaid in a Manhole. They're, they've got shaky cameras, bad lighting, they um, use unplanned moments. And what ends up happening with these guinea pig films in the 80s is um, they don't get direct distribution in the U.S., so they end up getting bootlegged. And so it feels real, um, and the realism is enforced by the bootlegging because I remember when I first saw the Guinea Pig series, I was watching like an unlabeled sixth-generation VHS tape that I'd purchased out of the back of Fangoria. And so seeing it in this format, seeing it in this grainy VHS unlabeled tapes that were coming over to the U.S., makes it feel so much more real because you don't know what you're watching. It's not like you're renting it at Blockbuster and taking it home. You're buying it through these kind of bootleg back alley means. And so in this regard, the presentation totally amps up us feeling like we have seen something real. And this is very much still preserving what we saw in the 1970s, the kind of realism aesthetic, even more so because of the heavy bootlegging. So though the guinea pig series was still pushing its realism and getting bootleg worldwide, in the States in the 1980s, we continued our, our kind of trend for crazy gore, but it became very studio and very controlled. 
But gore in film became everything. So much so that um, in David Skull's book, The Monster Show, he refers to it as the Scar Wars, the decade of the Scar Wars, where we were all trying to outdo each other with the effects. And that if you were going to do a horror film, that that was like a huge chunk of your budget that you had to think about in advance. How were you going to kind of woo the audience in with crazy effects? Some of my absolute favorite gore films came out during this time. And they don't all have this kind of chic 1980s aesthetic to them. Um, Things like Street Trash, which is just like the gooeyest, slimiest film ever. But, you know, still has this amazing kind of hyper color, slimy, sleaze aesthetic to it. But for much of the 80s, I can sum it up in films like Reanimator, where it does not necessarily look real, but there's a lot of it. There's a lot of gore. If we watch Reanimator again, you see that like every single moment is all about how do we up the ante on the gore. Everything spurts. Everything explodes. Every single person who enters the frame is at some point going to be stabbed and the blood is going to spurt out. It's just a fantastic, fantastic display. So then the question becomes, if the gore is heavily fake and somewhat more stylized, does it change the aesthetic? Do we still feel it as much? Well, the general belief is that it becomes more comedic. And we're going to talk about absurdity and gore and violence in just a sec um, with things like Reanimator and Dead Alive. But even discussing how the aesthetic changes, if it's real or more kind of stylized gore, I had always considered Suspiria to not be something that's like hyper gory. Um, I consider it to be heavy stylized, but I discussed previously in this episode about how the blood is more hyper color. It's almost an orange color. It seems to be more of an aesthetic choice to make it pop out on screen. And so for me personally, I had never watched it going, oh my God, this movie is so gory. But a couple of years ago, I was showing Suspiria in one of my college classes, and it was the first day of one of my aesthetic classes. And I opened with a scene of Suspiria because I consider it to be an aesthetic masterpiece. And all of a sudden, in the front row of the class, I see this one girl kind of watch her eyes roll back in her head, and then she just slipped down out of her desk. Immediately turn the lights on, call the campus um, medics, and they came, and she had passed out from how intense the gore was in the opening scene of Suspiria. And she was even a horror fan. She was like, oh no, I watch this stuff all the time. But the beating heart and the the knife going into it, which I watch and go, oh my gosh, that is so fake looking, but it's beautiful, but it's very fake looking. For her, she was perceiving it as kind of a hyper-realism. It was even more real than if it looked real because it was so over the top. And it just really kind of hit her psychologically. So I've come over the years to believe that gore is something that we kind of embody individually and that each one of us will have kind of something that sets us off very much like I discussed before with the fingernails being like one of my triggers that sometimes the more unrealistic the gore is, the more it can almost hit us internally because it's something that we've never seen before. Most of us at some point, be it surgical footage or um, you know, just other stuff that we've seen, have some vague idea of what a human heart actually looks like. But seeing one that doesn't necessarily look real, that looks like something foreign, like we've never seen before, like that is so hyper color and beyond reality can sometimes be just as shocking. But when thinking about films like Street Trash and Reanimator, what comes into my mind the most is when does gore become funny and how does it do this? How do we know to laugh? 
And this gets into the concept of the splastic, which was very 1980s, when gore becomes over the top and exaggerated to the point that we're laughing at it. And I always was confused by how this is done. A lot of it is kind of the aesthetic that is set up by the filmmaker. Like Reanimator has quirky music. The framing is more comedic. The colors are brighter. Like it just feels like a comedy. The same goes for Return of the Living Dead and a lot of the 1980s movies. And I absolutely love splastic movies. And I was always kind of curious about what this says about me or other splastic fans that we, when gore becomes so over the top and so exaggerated, and so just kind of excessive that it gets almost comedic. And I look back to one of the earliest things that I remember seeing with Gore in it, which was the skit from Monty Python. Um, back on the Monty Python show, I remember watching it on the um, PBS network when I was a kid. And they have this one sketch called Salad Days, which is supposed to be kind of um, a parody of some of the ultraviolet movies that were happening in the 1970s. But it, it, it's just a group of people who are out for a picnic and on this sunny day. And one of them throws a baseball and it goes into the other one's eye. And then all hell breaks loose. And the entire scene kind of devolves into this perverse violence of hands getting ripped off and arms being thrown and just chaos and I as a child remember seeing this and just guffawing thinking that it was absolutely hilarious and so as I've gotten older I've learned to just kind of revel in the perverse hilarity of splastic movies to just kind of go with it instead of sitting there questioning why I'm laughing at this horrible insanity to just go with it and enjoy it um, a couple of years ago we got the the absolute honor of working with Guar. And just being able to kind of see how they orchestrate the violence on stage and how they um, traverse between horror and comedy and kind of trying to incorporate both of them. It was like watching an artist at work. And then I look at things like the movie Dead Alive, which I showed in a class recently, and watching it with a group of students and how saturated and blood-soaked it is and just over-the-top and disgusting. And what I realized watching that was, the blood scenes are hilarious, but the one that my students found to be the most gut-churning was the dinner custard scene because the movie is soaked in blood, so much so that by the end, you know, everything is covered and it's still hilarious going all the way up through the lawnmower sequence at the end, but that we almost become a little um, deadened to the blood by the end, like we have seen it and everything is so over the top. But when it comes to that dinner scene, that's something that a lot of folks have not seen before, nor were you planning on. And so it really packs this excessive gut-churning punch. But while we were watching Dead Alive and I was really thinking about kind of the aesthetics of Splatstick, I was thinking about how Splatstick works and particularly how it works best with blood. It's the idea of we know how blood comes out of the body. It's the idea that if I prick my finger with a pen, usually a tiny drop will appear. But if I prick my finger with a pin in a splastic movie, a geyser will appear. A kind of trauma-ish rush of blood will then cover the room. And we find humor in that because we understand that that is not how bodies work. And then examining the geyser of blood, specifically how it works within Dead Alive and Reanimator, got me thinking about how we can kind of break down the different elements of gore instead of it just being gore in general. Is there something different to blood than there is to guts and so on? So for the end of this particular episode, I wanted to look at the specific elements of gore. So let's start with the aesthetics of blood. 
And with this, I open with the question, have we grown desensitized to blood on screen? Blood is something that we can now see everywhere. This is now allowed on television. It is now allowed, um, and even PG-13 films are allowed to have a certain amount of blood in them. So is it something that we've grown desensitized to? Do we still feel when we see blood on screen? Do we still feel and kind of have the same internal workings as we do if we were to see our own blood? I think that most of us have grown desensitized to blood in some capacity, but I think if done well, it still definitely hits. I mean, I look at the French uh, extreme movies from a couple of years ago, things like Martyrs and Inside, and the way that the blood was presented on screen in a lot of these movies definitely hit a lot harder than a lot of the other stuff I see. At the same time, I think that there is an aesthetic of blood that we've discovered kind of utilizing the red. And I look to things like Tokyo Gore Police for this, or even going back to Suspiria, you know, how you are using that red on screen. What are you doing with the red? I feel like the French film Raw did this really well a couple of years ago. How are you pushing the blood on screen to not really just make it visually compelling, but also make it feel real to the audience, make it feel something that, you know, kind of vibrates inside of them. There is a whole business of blood in Hollywood. There's all different types of blood. There's all different types of uses for it. And each one of the different effects houses will have proprietary blends, things that they do and different places that you need to go depending on what you need your blood to do. So thinking about blood, this now takes us a step further to the aesthetic of guts. How are guts on screen different from blood? Well, they feel more intense. They feel more visceral. Whereas there are scenes where I can say that the blood can almost be beautiful. Guts, I don't know if I've ever said those are beautiful on screen. And there's no person who does guts better than Lucio Fulci. And I look at City of the Living Dead from 1983, where we are literally watching a woman kind of upchuck her own guts. And this is a good example of kind of where I think that the aesthetics lie. She begins the scene by crying a single drop of blood, and it is a beautifully, uh, just gorgeously aesthetic scene until the actual innards of her start coming up, until we start seeing guts and organs come out. And then the whole scene shifts into something that is more churning. It's more visceral. It's more intense. And so guts up the ante. We don't always see them used in films. Usually it is just straight blood. And so seeing them feels so much worse. Like you can survive a little while without your blood, but you're not going to survive without your guts. So it just kind of pushes it even more. And so then the last level of kind of gore that I've observed is the aesthetics of flesh. And this, I have to say, is my personal favorite type of gore that I see on screen. And this would be things like society. I think Inside does this well. Cronenberg definitely gets into this. And so then it begins, do we feel the same way about flesh distortions on screen as we do blood and guts? Flesh, somehow, when we see the flesh distortions on screen... It feels way more perverse. It feels sexual. So it, it watching like a conjoining or a melding of flesh, when we see something like Society or any of the Cronenberg films, it feels way more tactile and, and almost sexual to us. Like there's kind of an aesthetic, um, more kinesthetic moments to it. This kind of melding of the flesh is something that we tend to think about with other people, even if the actual, you know, kind of perversions of the flesh are happening within one person on screen. 
it tends to be viewed sexually. So each one of these kind of elements, blood tends to be more kind of carefully orchestrated and more aesthetic, a guts get really visceral, and then flesh tends to get sexual. And it's fascinating how we kind of mentally think of these in all different manners. So let's go back to the question that we began with. Why do we watch this stuff? Well, ultimately, it is all about voyeurism. It is kind of this kind of voyeurism of death, an examination of our own bodies while they are still safe, while all of our big fluid-filled anxiety, fear-ridden sacks are still perfectly safe, but we're allowed to watch it in this almost classy, safe, voyeuristic way. A lot of it is catharsis. And for more um, on this, I highly recommend checking out the book Shock Value by Jason Vinneman. Um, who talks about Last House on the Left as kind of an outlet for dormant pain and that seeing this kind of um, carnage on screen really does kind of work out dormant, dormant pain. And then it gets into the question of enjoyment. Do we go watch movies like this for enjoyment? And I always say, of course we do. What is enjoyment isn't completely decided by us. And there are moments that I want super gory horror films. And then there are moments that I want things like Reanimator and Dead Alive where I want something that is completely over the top. And I perceive enjoyment in this way. So ultimately, a lot of this comes back to our own fears. A lot of it comes back to our own fluid-filled bodies just waiting to leak. And the knowing that at some point, they all will at some point every single one of our bodies are going to be destroyed because every single body that has become before us in time has been and so a lot of it is kind of facing our own inevitable end on screen and understanding that that is going to happen so we're going to kind of face it right now to to see what could happen and what is inside a lot of it is pushing our own senses pushing our own gag reflex and exploring our own mental boundaries and our own transgressiveness. And a lot of it is just kind of bucking society, being told, well, this is banned. It's too extreme for you to see and saying, fuck that. No, it's not. I'm going to push my own boundaries and see how far I can go. And so the next time you are watching an overly gory horror film, enjoy it for the enjoyment. Enjoy it for pushing your own boundaries. But also stop and enjoy it aesthetically. And remember that behind this, there is a filmmaker who made aesthetic choices, selecting the shade of blood, selecting the thickness of it, selecting how much guts are on screen or how the merging of flesh looks. And realize that even though that these are there to make us cringe, that there's also a visual side to it and that someone orchestrated this and coordinated it just like an artist. Also, before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to say that we have been doing a 31 horror deep cuts throughout all of October. We've been posting 31 horror deep cuts, one a day on our socials, on Instagram and Facebook. So please follow Nightmare University and check out some of our fantastic deep cuts for some amazing horror titles, um, a lot of which have been missed by um, general horror audiences that we really feel need some more attention. So please check us out on socials, Nightmare University. Thanks, guys. Nightmare.
Center University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pacetta, executive producers Dallas Sonnier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safa-Vemer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording design and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Moynerdi, Jason Koslerich, and Rachel Wilson.